Blog Talk Radio. Radio Inside Edition. Today is August 20th, 2016. I'm your host, John Robb. I want to thank you for listening, however, wherever, whenever you listen to the show. It's always great to have you as a part of us. Fantastic show for you today. Two hours coming up, kicking it off with 2015 Chris Subscribe Award winner for her book, Deception, Kelly Armstrong. And we're going to be talking about her latest book, Betrayals, which is book four in her Cansville series. We are then going to knock it off with um, Lynn Constantine, Dina Ray, and then J.T. Patton will finish the show today. So it's going to be a very, very exciting time. Wish you uh, all just relax, take it easy, have some tea, whatever it is you do on the treadmill whenever you're listening. It's great to have you here. We also want to let you know that all of our shows this year are brought to you by Kensington Books, so please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on their author's which, of course, include Kevin O'Brien, Lisa Jackson, and so many more. So let's get it right now with our first guest. Again, her uh, new, number one New York Times bestselling author, Kelly Armstrong. We had given her the Crimson Scribe Award last year, which is the highest award the magazine can give for the best book of the year. And that was for book three in the series uh, called Deceptions. But now she's back with her latest book called Betrayals in the Cansville series. So, Kelly, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you. So we're now into August, which means one thing. The last three years, that means that the Canville series um, has been coming out, starting with Omens and Visions, Deceptions, and now Betrayals. So give everybody a little bit of a look inside the latest book, Betrayals, and then we can kind of get into the series in general. Sure. So I I will start by sort of going back to the series uh, series of concept because by book four we're well into it. So going back to the to the very start with uh, omens, the basic idea there was that a privileged young woman discovered she was she was adopted and the child of convicted serial killers. So where the press de- descended, she took off, uh, ended up in this very strange small town of Canesville. So over the last few books, we've seen her both, of course, investigating her parents' parents' crimes, torn between wanting to just prove to herself that, yes, they are guilty, and, of course, hoping that maybe there's something there that says they're not at least as guilty as they as they seem. By the time we hit betrayals, she's gotten that that answer, but she's still trying to solve some of the mysteries of Kingsville. So when 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 readers start getting into betrayals and you kind of work your way through omens and all the way through, would this would you say that this should be a series that you should start at the beginning? instead of kind of jumping in at the end, or how would you kind of want to tell people uh, they should kind of handle this one? 
Yeah, this one would definitely yeah, be a start at the beginning one. one. I've written different types of series, and I mean, sometimes it's perfectly fine to start at any book because they're all a central story that is wrapped up by the end, and the characters continue, but the plot line wraps up. This one, yes, the characters continue, and every book contains a central mystery that is solved by the end of it, but there's so much overarching thing that I actually, uh, when I do hear of somebody coming in at book three or four, I just cringe and, and think, did it make any sense at all by that point? And, uh, and apparently it does, but it's gotten a little weird by uh, book four. So. Yeah. And, you know, you have written in several different series. Uh, you know, the Women of the Otherworld series is one of your longest running runs. But, of course, you have several other series that you kind of, you know, get in, uh, that, you know, that you've done, Darkness Rising, Age of Legends. I mean, many, I mean, you just had this book three of Age of Legends come out earlier this year. So how do you keep it all together? <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work. It really is. Uh, the, uh, the Other World was such a long-running series. That was 13 books plus umpteen novellas and short short stories and this massive universe of multi-narrators and I had tons and tons of notes for that one. Canesville, it does mean going back sometimes and double checking things. It uh, helps that that they've been written pretty much back to uh, back so I can keep that momentum going. But it is just keeping everything you know, everything as clear as possible, and then knowing that I'm still going to probably end up making some mistake, and I'll go back and double double check book one or book two, and realize that I said something entirely different than what I thought I said. <laughs> I, and and that is kind of you know when you do have so many kinds of things going on. I guess the one question is. When did you decide to kind of start the Canesville series? Was it the character Olivia? You know, was it the plot? You know, what was it that kind of drove you to to just get into it? It was uh, two things. So uh, I was coming off of the other world, which had done very uh, well, and that gave me a sort of like a cushion there that I wasn't as concerned for the next uh, next series and just said, what do I really want want to do? What are some of the tropes that I would love to you know, work with? And it was combining two of my favorite tropes. And one is the small town with a secret. I'm a big horror buff. I love those small town stories where obviously there's some secret they are concealing. And normally in those ones, it ends up being that someone sacrificed every year or something that does not happen here. But just that, that idea of a small town with that central secret that the main character who's the newcomer has to find, find out. And also the reverse Cinderella story. Um, Cinderella stories are lots of fun, but I actually like the uh, reverse better, which is the character who has everything and something happens to make them lose it and they have to sort of climb their way back up. And then coming up with what would make my, what would make Olivia lose everything that she has, of course, the obvious answer is parents suffer some kind of financial ruin. That's very, very boring. So, so then I thought, well, what if she found out some you know, terrible secret about her uh, past, and being mystery novels, great secret would, would be if 
if uh, her parents turned out to be convicted serial killers. That would definitely sort of upend your, your, uh, your life and might make you leave it and everything you've accomplished behind. And, you know, and that's one thing that I would think that would be difficult as an author to do is to kind of create a character in that kind of way where, you know, of course, I mean, I can't say of course, I mean, but in real life, you know, your parents are not serial killers. So you're creating something that is a little way outside of the box of the norm for yourself. So how hard do you kind of struggle with that emotional pull to kind of, to, to kind of sit there with Olivia and go, how would she kind of react in these kinds of situations, knowing when she finds out the truth, how devastating that could possibly be? Because, yeah, your world has now, you know, cracked into this million pieces. Yeah, and it was partly saying, how would, how would I react? Um, and it was partly going out to your know, friends uh, and saying, hey, scenario for you. Imagine that you're 24 you have had a great you know, life, and as far as you know, you, these have always been your parents, um, and suddenly you find out that when you were a baby, you were adopted, um, and your parents are actually in jail, convicted serial killers. How would you react? What would you, would you do? And getting lots of answers there, and then taking what I had for my character of Olivia and saying, how would this particular character react, knowing what I want as the outcome, which is for her to decide to leave, to not have you know, her parents take everything away from her because it's not her fault, but for her to, her to say, in order to protect my, my adoptive parents, I'm going to get out and just go and you know live live someplace under a different different name, get a job, and try climbing back up from that point. Mm-hmm. Now, when you go into a series like the Canesville series, do you already have a preconceived notion of how many books you want to do, or does it completely just go until you feel like I've told enough of the story and this is about it? Yeah, at the very beginning, when I first conceived of the plot, I said three books. It was going to be a trilogy. I knew how it was going to uh, wrap up. I had a basic concept for the, the uh, three books. But then I started doing my research and my writing and getting into it. And I was probably halfway through the first book when my uh, editor said, just want to check, do you want us billing this as a trilogy? And I said, hold on. Um, I just, I, I just tell by that, that there was no way I was wrapping it up in three books. So I said right. five, and that is true. It is five. I have written the uh, fifth. It's in edits now, and it does wrap up in five. And, you know, and that's kind of like the surprise. You know, there it is. It's like I thought I was going to have three, but then things kind of start taking over. And, was there one particular moment, you know, when you decided, you know what, this is not going to be three? Did it happen when you were kind of writing a certain book? Was it during maybe book two or three? Or, you know, when did you kind of have that moment like, this isn't going to happen, i, I got to keep going? Yeah, it was quite early in book one that it was that oh, my geez. original idea was, yeah, my very original idea was that she will solve the mystery of what happened with her parents in three books, and here's how it will go. And then there was some other stuff mixed in with with that that involved her and a, a, a bigger scenario 
around that. And I was thinking, okay, it'll all wrap up, but I could could very quickly tell that that would have been a very abrupt ending, um, and then and that instead it made sense to yes, she finds out most of what about her uh, you know, parents by book three as planned, but the rest of it that's kind of snowballed since the you know beginning um, needs another two books to actually hit a resolution there. Yeah. Now. Was there a certain character, you can say, kind of maybe through the series or maybe just in betrayals, that kind of snuck up on you, kind of had that bigger voice that maybe you thought they were kind of going to have, somebody that kind of surprised you maybe along the way? Who, who would you say that that character would be? Who would fall into that category? And there were actually a lot of characters who did. The, what I would call the male lead when I first conceived of his a character was very different um, and was not a very, I would not say the most interesting of my characters. So I went back in and gave him more backstory, and that really spun his a character and made him very different. And then there is another character, Ricky, who I knew was going to play a bigger role long term, and I just introduced him in the first first book in like one scene, one or two scenes. I knew he was going to play a bigger role, but it wasn't until I started fleshing that out that I realized he was, he was going to play a much bigger role than what I had envisioned. And that always happens, that a character... Or I will think that some character will play a much larger role, which was Olivia's um, adopted mother. I expected to play a big role. Um, and it turned out that I sent her to Europe in, in book one, and she has never come, come back. <laughs> she is over <laughs> in Europe. We just don't talk about her. I mean, clearly there was an authorial problem there that I didn't deal with enough but she turned out to not be a character that I could actually use and to bring her back would have caused problems but not the good kind of problems that would propel the plot forward and you know with with so many books that you have published how do you kind of when when you decide that you're going to jump into a new one do you put yourself and say you know what this time I'm going to try to you know challenge myself into doing something a little different um, uh, maybe I'm going to try to do a little thing with maybe plot scening or you know character development or dialogue or things like that. Do, how do you keep yourself kind of fresh and challenged with each book that you put out? It is that every time, particularly with a new series, I will think, how do I want to do this one differently? What do I feel that I haven't explored well before. And I think between Otherworld and Canesville, uh, one of the things that I hadn't really explored was subplots. I mean, the plots for Otherworld, while there would be minor subplots, they really were within a book. There was one major plot, and you, and you could have some minor conflicts and that outside of it, but no major subplots happening there. And Canesville's got plenty of them. And I really found that that sort of gave me a depth to it, that I was able to sort of weave those all the way through, um, and it just sort of it made it sort of a wider experience for me, if that makes any sense. Um, but really, sort of having that sense of depth made it feel very different, and so I've carried that forward. I'm now into a new series that is a mystery, and I've carried that concept of subplots forward into that. And 
you know, when when you call it Canesville, of course, and it's, so you have it set in Canesville, Illinois, and the town is its own kind of character. So if people were kind of, let's say, they were maybe going on a touristy visit to just go visit Canesville, what would be kind of the vibe you think that they would get just walking around the town and kind of feeling things out and, and, and trying to maybe experience what Olivia and the other townspeople are, are kind of getting out of Canesville? I think if somebody went to Canesville as a tourist, the first sense they would they would get would be a polite lack of welcome. I mean, it is really not a town that welcomes tourists. There's no place to stay. There's no hotels, no motels. Nobody would be rude. In other words, they would be, they would be very, very polite. But you would get the sense that this is not a town where you ever go to just visit. Now, if you were going there, say, because you had family there or something, it really is a town sort of set back in a different time period where you don't have a lot of modern modern uh, modern homes. The town is bounded in, so it so it uh, cannot grow on purpose. But that sense of that main street and that very genteel, um, you know, you stop for a children, you let the uh, children children cross rather than having you know stoplights. It's a town of order and of rules and these sort of unspoken rules. And people follow it and they feel very, very safe safe there. But a newcomer might definitely get, get the sense that, that things are a little bit strange. Mm-hmm. Now, and now you mentioned that book five is, is complete and then that's going to be the end of the series. Do you feel a sense of relief kind of knowing that you're finished? Do you feel a sense of you know, lost, like, wow, you know, I'm going to miss it. How how do you kind of feel when you know that you've kind of wrapped up the series and, and now you have to move on with that blank canvas again and, and kind of reconstruct something all over? I think I feel, I mean, if there's if there's relief, it's relief that I achieved what I wanted to uh, to you know, achieve. There's been four books of a buildup, and it's book five. There was the you know, worry of is it going to be what – what I expected. Is it going to be a satisfying con- conclusion? I uh, got back my editorial letter this uh, this week, and there's a big thumbs up on that count, so I can you know relax. But there is a sense of loss too, and I sort of combat that um, be two ways. One is that I will continue writing in that world, short stories, novellas for a while, filling thing- things in, so that while the major plot is done. I haven't totally left, and I have started a new series. First book, City of the Lost, came out earlier this uh, this uh, year, and it's the first time that I've done that where they've overlapped the end of a series with the beginning of the uh, new one, and that's kind of given me a little bit more of a safe feeling that I know that that one launched. It was well uh, received. I'm having a blast with it, so I've kind of got a bit of a more comfortable transition there than I had in the past, when I when I really did end a, a series com- completely, and the next one didn't start for a year with a whole new uh, set of characters and world. You know, and that's what the power of eBooks, I think, like you know, lends to give authors is that ability to write those short stories, those bridges between things. I mean, do you think that if eBooks was never around, you would ever have the ability to kind of bring those short stories out and write those little novellas and have them as impactful as they are now? 
I'm not sure if they'd, if they'd have as much impact, but I was actually writing them for many years. I mean, when The Other World started, I was two books in, and I was writing a book a year. I had quit my job. I had small uh, small uh, kids, so I had to, and I had extra extra time. Uh, so I thought, what 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 can I do? Write, obviously. So I was doing um, e serials online for prequels to that uh, to that uh, series. So I did that for years, bringing out a chapter every uh, two every. Uh, Two weeks, and then those ended up being collected into print volumes. Now with the ebook, so it does give me that extra freedom of knowing that anything that I write, I don't have to worry. You know, will it will I have enough to fit into a your collection for your publisher? I can just go and put it out. Actually, for uh, betrayals, I did something that was new uh, for me, where I did I did a pre-order special, and it was that if you pre-ordered or got it out or you know put it on hold at your library or bought it opening opening week, you got an ebook mini collection with one reprint Canesville story, one new short story, and one new novella. Uh- yeah, and and that's and I think that that's uh, like I said, one of the great things that ebooks kind of give you is that ability to kind of bring those things out kind of right away, and and people can still stay fresh and and they still get that great taste in their mouth from you know things that you've written, and they're able to kind of it's almost like a TV series. It's like something that they can kind of get themselves around and and not have to wait like they, in the dark ages where it was at one book a year or maybe two books a year, and you're kind of sitting around fiddling your thumbs trying to figure out what else to do. <laughs> It is. I mean, now that book uh, four is out, people have seen me say that book five is done, and they're like, "Well, yeah, then why like, can't we you know, get that get that sooner?" It's like, and it's like, it has nothing to do with me having that book done. It's on a schedule. <laughs> yep, it is, and you know, and the and I don't think a lot of people actually realize the process of you know, the editing and, and how these things have to go. I mean, it, it takes quite some time. You just can't throw it out there and your editor's like, Kelly, perfect, no errors. Let's put it to press and we'll get it out in two months. It doesn't work that way. I mean, there's, you know, no, there's a lot that goes actually, into that, and that's the world that people don't see. It is, and I actually put something up a couple of years, years back where I did a document that was the complete editing process on Visions, the second Canesville book, and it went through every 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 step where I would say here's you know first you know edits here's a few things that my editor commented on here's you know how long that you know took here's second edits here's copy edits and people were were like oh my god I had no idea that a book went mm-hmm. through that many rounds they I think do just you know, figure that you send it in and they you know correct some your know, commas and out it comes like no and it's good that it doesn't cuz you need those extra steps which is the one thing about ebooks that is bad because you're able to just throw that up there in a word document without having to go through that process and you can have a great-looking cover, spend a couple hundred bucks, make it look really good, the packaging, but then the product inside has not been massaged, has not been you know, edited through, and there's holes and there's things. And then people are like, God, I spent two ninety nine, but I really didn't get my two ninety, even my two ninety nine's worth. It is. It is. I had somebody comment, you know, recently saying that you know they had been reading a whole bunch of um, you know self self you know published things and they are just really uh, glad to read something that was well well uh, edit, edited and it is yeah because it is really easy to just put anything up i mean when i do stuff 
like those freebies, I still pay an editor for them because I would be terrified of, of just showing somebody what I have written and edited. I need someone to go through and both look at it for you know, content. Have I made any you know, mistakes? Are there anything that's you know, unclear, you know, too rushed, too slow? And then copy uh, editing. And and then proofing, no, I mean, it goes through several people for proof proofreading. Yes, it does, and I'm sure you've gotten this question many times before too. But is there a series that is concluded that you kind of look back and say, you know what, maybe I can put something else into it? Do you think about that, or do you not even do that? I think you know. I think that there are often series like that. I mean, the uh, other world I have wrapped up because I've done short stories for years, and I finally, you know, said, oh, "Okay, I am really out of ideas for this, and we're and we're uh, we are uh, done." I look back at my first YA trilogy with the darkest, darkest of powers, and I had been at the time debating: Do I continue that for another book or or two? Or do I switch it, switch it up? And I switch, switched it up. And if there was one series that I could go back to and say, you know what, I should have gone another book or two on that, I that 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 would be it. But of course now it's that came out in 2008, nine, and the ten, and to go back would be really really weird now. But yeah, I, I do still because it's YA, and you keep getting new readers who go find that because they've just hit that you know age group i get like weekly requests you know when are you going to write more in this uh, series and it's like well that one came out like five six years ago it's done but it is the uh, one that i kind of wish i i had done i had sort of followed my gut and done at least one more book for well, Kelly, we want to thank you so much for coming on. Time has just flown by, and we are now at the end. It's like, a, it's like the end of a good trilogy. We're, we're finished. We're done. <laughs> We've come to the end. But, again, we want to thank you so much for coming on and speaking about your latest book, Betrayals, which, uh, just to let everybody know, is book four in the Canesville series. So make sure you check it out now. And if you want to go back, you can go to Omens and then go all the way through Visions, Deceptions, and Betrayal. So, again, Kelly, thank you so much for coming on, and you have a great day. Thank you. You too. All right, bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Kelly Armstrong, and the latest book is called Betrayals. You go to kellyarmstrong.com for more information on all of her books, and she has a lot of them. And this is a great way to kind of jump in and catch up with her Canesville series. Um, book four is out now. Book five is going to be at the end of the year, so you've still got some time to make sure that you get them all done. So, again, we want to thank Kelly so much for coming on. And we also are going to transition. We have some other things that, of course, we always have to talk about during this time. Is we um, a new book coming out from Kensington Books by Lisa Black called That Darkness. And you can follow the evidence and uncover the truth. It's the latest in the Gardner and Reiner series. And, again, Lisa Black called That Darkness, Riveting, Spellbounding, Tout, and Haunting, says Jeff Lindsay. And Jeff, of course, is the creator of the Dexter series. Um, and he has a new book out, which is not in that series, so make sure you can check out that, but Lisa Black. Also, J.M. LeDuc has book two out in his um, series called Painted Beauty. Go to jmleduc.com. Again, this is book two in the Sinclair and O'Malley series. Sandra Brannon, uh, Lisa Clark O'Neill, several others, of course, are saying that 
you got to get into uh, check out here Sin, check out Pain of Beauty. Uh, it's definitely a a little bit different from what J.M. wrote on his last stuff, so make sure you go check out jmleduke.com for more information on that. And then finally, S.M. Friedman, Memories Are Lies, Memories Are Ghosts, Memories Are Weapons. His latest book, The Faithful and Impact Winter, which is book two in 2015, we put Faithful on our list as one of the best of 2015. So make sure you check out smfriedman.com for more information on that. We're going to take a short break. We're going to be back with our next guest, and we're going to be talking with Lynn Constantine on her latest book, The Veritas Deception. I hope I said Veritas correct, but you know how I suck with names, so we'll see if I did that right. And in the meantime, you can listen to this short little interlude. After the break, again, we want to thank Kelly Armstrong for joining us, and now we are going to transition into our next guest. Uh, her latest book is called The Veritas Deception. See, tomato, tomato, so Veritas, not test, so I screwed that one up, but I was close. It'll give me a little bit of points for that one. The author is Lynn Constantine. We've known Lynn for a little couple years now. Met her over at a Thriller Fest, and now we're great to be able to see her book out and speak with her. So, Lynn, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I've been so, looking forward to it all day. <laughs> really? Yeah. Awesome. <clears throat> okay, so so let's kind of get into uh, to your book here. So the Veritas Deception. Um, tell us about it. Let's sure. See what so the Veritas Deception um, starts off when the a U.S. senator is murdered, and that 
plunges his wife and her ex-lover into the heart of a conspiracy. So she discovers that he really wasn't who he thought she was, and it leads her and Jack Logan, they're two journalists, on a countrywide chase to get to the bottom of of what he was involved in, who he really was, and um, a, a kind of a, not really a secret society, but sort of a, a group of individuals that have been controlling a lot of things. Now, the one thing is is that you know you you kind of take things back. I mean, this is kind of historical stuff that you're going into. I mean, one of the things on your on your site is a um, a blurb from from Proverbs four twenty one, and so. You, you kind of already know that when you do that, you're going to be going back into into the times, you know, back into Christianity, um, and like you say, back into the time of Christ. So right. how does kind of all that stuff kind of weave its way together into modern day now? That's a great question. Well, there are several um, plot lines. So the book goes back and forth between present day, which, you know, is, is in current time, and to another storyline taking place in the 1970s where a young medical student is abducted at this place only known as the Institute. It's a training facility. And through Maya's story firsthand, you, you learn or the reader learns you know, what these ancient relics have to do with, with the current time. So the, the Institute is run by an individual called Damon Cross, who's the antagonist in the book. And he was raised by somebody who has ties to um, Nazi Germany, and it, it brings in that whole secret society <clears throat> of the Nazis where they were looking for religious relics, and <clears throat> this chase for, or this chase for the relics weaves into some of the other characters, their into their backstory, back generations into into different families. So, it's it's not the whole you know thrust of the book, but it's definitely a part of the. Um, motivation and for what the antagonist does and so you you see really most of that through that old story but then when the in the modern story with jack and taylor when they discover what happened 30 years ago then they they also are kind of brought up to speed and and understand what these religious relics have to do with with the present day and and of course what's funny is is the religious relics right now are in the news because they're looking for that Nazi train of gold in Poland, and they don't know if they've gotten it. Do they have it? Do they not have it? And so that's kind of prominent right now in the news. So those things really never go away. So when you kind of write a book this, you know, like this, and you kind of use these historical um, aspects of it, and you kind of go back into time, but many different parts of time, and then you kind of see things kind of come modern like it is. How do you, are you just kind of like, wow, you know, that's kind of weird that, you know, those things kind of, you know, they still pop up today. So the books are actually fictionalized, but there's still a lot of nonfiction included with them. That, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things, it's actually kind of been surprising to me as well. Some of the, you know, some of the things that have come out in the book with with the relics, as you mentioned, um, a lot of, the, there's a there's a whole thread about the media and the entertainment world and how how people potentially are manipulated by, you know, messages and themes that are through there in ways that they don't even realize. And, and so far, a lot of the feedback that I get from people who have read the book is my, you know, like this almost seems like nonfiction. And a lot of what you've written about has come to fruition. And, and the book took shape over so many years. It really started at I mean, I think it's been 20 years and it's changed and, you know, it's, I've, I've gone back and forth. And then I was lucky to have a terrific editor 
uh, Jamie Levine, who she actually helped me to bring in some of the, to to strengthen up some of the storyline about the relics. And um, I think it was a good addition to the story because the original plot didn't have, it had some relics, but they were kind of fictional. And so we decided that the book would be much stronger if we tied it to a real relic, which I won't not to say there won't be any spoilers, I won't give away what it is, but it, you know what they're looking for is something that definitely existed. And I did some research and spoke to some different Bible scholars about you know, the origin of it. So a lot of the history about the relics is actually true, and then what could have happened to them over the years and what they could signify and what they could do in someone's hands, that's the fiction part. And we sort of talked about you know, well, what, what could happen or why could somebody be so intent on finding these relics, but I mean that the whole secret society and Himmlich's group in Nazi times. I mean, they really, they did believe that if they could get a hold of different relics, that it would give them power. And there was just such a strong occult um, theme, which I learned through the research for this book. And your your two characters, Jack and Taylor, uh, they're, they're reporters, and that's and that's kind of you know your, your background is marketing. You're doing a lot of stuff social media wise, and you know you have a lot of business experience. So why did you kind of decide to kind of go more of the journalistic route maybe with your characters? Was that just more of the familiar? Was it something that you, you know, did you kind of base them off somebody that you kind of knew? How did they kind of come about? Right. No, I mean, you know, the marketing piece was what was the impetus really for the idea because when I was in marketing, um, I worked for credit card companies. And, you know, our our job, my job was to figure out ways to get people to use their credit cards to do house projects, you know, really to go into more debt. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the, the best. Kind yeah, of, really. You, 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 you wanted to be in more debt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, it definitely uh, was not the most noble profession to be in. And as I, you know, I kind of struggled with that a bit. And, and I would drive. I commuted close to D.C. for work. This was when I lived in Maryland. And I, used, and I remember thinking, wonder what other board, you know, what's happening in other boardrooms with other products. And, you know, how much is really uh, of what we see and we do are we unwittingly doing because, you know, we're kind of being cued to it. But it would have been hard, I think, and I and actually had a, the original character was the head of an advertising agency. He was the original protagonist, and it was his wife who had also been in advertising. But then um, when I changed the storyline again, I, I felt like if I had reporters – that I could bring in more characters through their eyes because originally my book had, I think, maybe 20 or 25 point-of-view characters, which was insane. And I realized, you know, that this is never going to fly. People are going to be so confused in reading the book. So I migrated the characters. I changed them to reporters because I felt like the other benefit of that is that if I wanted to turn this into a series, there's always another story, you know, another investigation to look for them to get into, so I felt like they could be good series character. But I don't, you know, I, I don't really know a lot, so I had to talk to different reporters. And I have a friend who's a television producer who, who was for a long time with Good Morning America, and so she helped me that because that's Taylor. Taylor was more of, um, you know, a television journalist, and Jack is more an investigative journalist. So that helped me with their background. But that that's how they evolved into into what they did. And you just kind of said, so this is definitely going to be a series. This is not a standalone. You're gonna you're gonna continue this on with a series with Jack and Taylor. I would like to do that. I mean, you know, I've taken my career's taken a, a little bit of a different path. So I'm now what we, they call a hybrid author. Um, I also write domestic thrillers with my sister, and we recently acquired a literary agent, and she sold our first one um, 
just this past July, you know, to HarperCollins. So we'll be, you know, we'll be writing along that path. So I've just got to figure out how I'm going to kind of do both, you know. But I, w- I definitely want at least a follow-up to the Veritas Deception be- and because the way that, I mean, it could be a standalone, but oh, people are already writing on Amazon. Uh, there better be a sequel. So I'm feeling that I at least need to, to, give an, to get another book out there. So. And so now I, I see that you, you know, that you wrote one with your sister called Circle Dance. Is that, yes. is that what the domestic one is, is that, or is that something a little different? Is this, is this, no, is this something Circle much Dance different is, than it? Yeah, that's a, that's an, oh, that was the first book that she and I wrote together years ago, and it's, it's a really just women's fiction. And I think as, okay. as a lot of you know, first books are, it's, it's not autobiographical, but, I mean, it's about two Greek-American sisters, which my sister and I are. And it was um, just a book that we wanted to write really even more for our children because we're both married to non-Greeks and we wanted to be able to pass along some of those traditions to them. But when I look back, I mean, I love the story and it's always going to have a place in my heart, but I really did not know anything about, you know, point of view or uh, it it was kind of, you know, the very first attempt. So I, I, uh, every time I give that book to a friend, I say, just don't judge me by the writing. And that book was a long time ago. (laughs) <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing that you know that you do is that you 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 write and you write and you write and then you finally you know kind of hit it to where you you kind of hit your stride. And when you sat down with the Veritas Deception, you know, you you kind of I'm not sure how many drafts you had to go through, but there had to come to a point when you're like, I finally hit it and I finally got it. But how long did it kind of take for you in order to kind of get the book massaged to where you were ready and then you finally got it published? It was, I mean, a good, not counting the starts and stops from before, but when I really got serious about it, it took me close to four years because it took me probably a year and a half to do the draft. And then it was last summer when I thought it was ready, and that's when um, Jamie worked with me and gave me a 50-page editorial letter. <laughs> said here you know here's some stuff and uh it's when I ha- and I I just kind of put it away for a week and then I picked it back up and I had a lot of research to do uh, you know there was it was kind of like the it was had good bones but there was a lot of fleshing out that was necessary in terms of world world building and you know setting and even depth of characters so that took me her developmental edit I probably spent another 6 months on and then after that, um, I had a copy edit done. So I would say, you know, probably that whole thing took close to a year. And then um, designing the cover and then the whole, you know, proofing. I've read the book ad nauseum, you know, probably 40 times. And I think I could almost recite it by heart because it's just, you know how that is. You just read it and my brain kind of knew what it was going to say. So I would miss things. There would be an A or a the missing. And, and I, even though I had other people proofing it too, so I find I think I ordered at least six proofs of the book, and then it was finally released on August 10th. So yeah, it it took a lot longer than I thought it was going to take. Yeah, it's one of those you long know? journeys that again, um, you know, I was just you know, and I was just talking with Kelly about you know the editing thing. I don't think people really understand the time and effort that it takes when they see a book on the shelf, how much time and blood, sweat, and tears it took to kind of go into it. If they've never done that path, they just kind of think, oh, you just kind of put something together, write it, put it out, and then there you go. Yeah. And yeah. it's when they hear these stories, and even authors that are up and coming, 
Um, you know, well, you've been, you know, you go to Thriller Fest, you kind of hear, mm-hmm. I think half of them have this wrong misconception of what the publishing world is actually like and how it's much different than what they think it is. And that was probably, and I don't know what you kind of, when you kind of came into this world, and then all of a sudden you're probably like, uh-oh, it's not really what I thought. It's something much more complicated. It definitely is. I mean, and I think that's another, yeah, a common misconception, too, with indie publishing. is like, oh, well, you know, you can just have it out there in, you know, a week or two. Well, you can if you don't want it to be of a high quality. I think it's really difficult. I mean, you know, I could move as quickly as I wanted, and it still took me from the time the edit was finished a full year, right, to bring it to market. And I don't have 20 departments that, you know, that I need to go through. So it gave me a deeper appreciation, too, of, you know, of, of the traditional world as well where, you know, you get a book deal and it's still going to take, you know, a year or 18 months for it to come out. But there is a, a ton that goes into a book. And I think, too, I didn't really understand until I worked with um, such a great editor, I didn't understand the editorial process as well and that whole, you know, you, you're just so close to your own story that I think it, it's virtually impossible to see the design flaws or you know or where where you might need things to be changed or shored up and and it just makes all the difference in the world i wouldn't put i would never put anything out there again without a good editor and let's kind of get into because you do a lot of social media you write for the magazine you know you you, yes. you do some writing for our magazine and you know you always talk about the social media aspect and and you know twitter and facebook and kind of how to use that to to your advantage so you actually have kind of a leg up on authors that are kind of getting to this that just like to sit behind their computer and write but they don't like to talk about themselves in in, in kind of another way so how how did you kind of fall into that world of you know knowing how important social media is and being able to utilize it into a way that helps you with your writing and getting people out and getting the word out there about you um i think it was really by sort of by accident i mean you know it was at thriller fest about 5 years ago that i really had my writing career kickstarted because you know i had, after circle dance I had my kids, I homeschooled my kids actually until they were in fifth grade. And so I really had no creativity left for any writing. So I went to my first Thriller Fest and I met all these authors who had written, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 books. And I felt like such a slouch that I had just written this one book. And they had these great websites and they were on this thing called Twitter. So I really, when I came home, I built my website and I signed up for Twitter and kind of tried to figure out what it was and, and Facebook. And it was through Twitter that I began to connect with other people, other authors, and I, you know, would would get marketing help. And I think, um, I think Jonathan Gunson is the one. He was the one. I bought his book, and I think Doug. I'm trying to remember, it's not Doug. One of the other people at Twitter Fest, I mean, at Thriller Fest, had written a book about Twitter. So I bought a couple of those, just those how-to books, like how do you do Twitter, how do you build it up, Twitter for authors, and I and I just followed that, and I began to see how. What a great community and how how generous other authors are. Like, and typically, if you follow, most of the time they're going to follow back. Because I've I've done consulting now for social media for different industries, and I find that by far, authors and the writing community are the are the most generous with their followbacks, their retweets, and with their advice. Um, so I just it just kind of took off, and I think I I just liked it, and um, over time. The following began to to grow. I I connected with 
some other authors, and at the time I was promoting, I wasn't even promoting Circle Dance yet because we had just put it, uh, converted it to ebook and done some editing on it. So for the first six months when I was on Twitter, I was really just on there to learn and to connect with other people and to, to promote their work. So when Circle Dance was ready, then people were very generous to do the same thing for me, and I had sent it you know, a couple to a couple Greek people that I had connected with because uh, it's a Greek book and I'm Greek. And one woman who were, I've never met her in person, but we're friends, we email all the time. She wrote an article about it for the Greek newspaper and then, you know, another Greek magazine picked it up. And then I, so I began to see how, you know, in the long run and after, it's really about the building the relationships, but that how those relationships can ultimately benefit you. And so I really think that my approach for Twitter has always been, a more organic relationship based not mercenary to say well I'm going to build this relationship so that this person helps me but just genuinely to building it and that's what I what I try to teach other people so when I became more adept at it I think and then I I was asked to speak um teach a class at Thriller Fest and then that brought people to say hey can you help me so it it just happened all very organically hmm. yeah and and that's it's just it's one of those things you have to be patient with I mean, I am not a social media person. I could really care less what people are having for dinner um, right. and, and some of the pictures that they throw mm-hmm. out there. And, and, it's, and it's very difficult to navigate through because there's so much saturation of it now that trying to just get seen is difficult enough. And I, I still haven't figured out. I mean, I still have no idea. I mean, I do some of the tricks and this and that, but, I mean, it's like a full-time kind of gig that you just kind of got to get into and you just kind of got to do it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think you have to decide. There's a lot. There are a lot of different platforms out there. And you know, for for Facebook, I mean, I think when Twitter, again, depending on who you follow, you see a lot more relevant links or how or how tos on on writing. Facebook seems to be more where everybody's posting the pictures of their what they you know made for dinner or they're oh, working God. out at the gym or what you know. Which who needs to see that right when you haven't been to the gym? No, no one two needs weeks to see that ever. Right? I know. Oh, so that. I don't really spend quite as much time on Facebook because, you know, it, it requires as well more of a financial investment. I mean, not huge, but I know a lot of people talk about Facebook ads and that they work well, and I haven't really gotten much into that. So I've stuck primarily with my writing with Twitter and Facebook just for um, friends. But I think if, you, if you're strategic about what – and if you know what your goals are with social media, then it can be, you know, a great – way for you to connect with other people and and to ultimately promote your work but i mean it's also nice we as writers we're sitting by ourselves in our rooms and it's just nice sometimes to get on there and know that there are other people out there and throw a tweet out there and get uh, some encouragement back you know you don't i think it's kind of like the i wrote a, a post on it it's the writer's social social media is the writer's water cooler so when you want to take that 10 15 minute break and you just want to hop off you know go on to facebook and see what people are doing or, you know, what their latest book is or or hop on Twitter. And, you know, and the other thing that I found with Twitter is you can connect pretty much with anyone. So when I was writing um, The Veritas Deception, I was also interested in some stuff on bioethicists because there is a stream, you know, or a theme about bioethics in the book. And I had seen an article of a scientist, a bioethic, and he he had a sort of a different approach than most of them do so he i googled him i found him on twitter i sent him a tweet 
telling him what I was doing. He followed me right back, tweeted right back. We exchanged emails. And, you know, I would have never been able to do that in a pre-Twitter world. It would have been much more difficult, I think, to track him down. But, it, you know, Twitter is like the perfect way. It's, it's, it's like a whole universe out there. And, I mean, unless you're trying to get some huge celebrity. I'm not saying they're going to answer, but, you, you know, for research questions or um, anything like that, it, it's just a great vehicle. So how do you kind of see yourself working with, um, you know, the next the next book in, in the series? Are you going to stick with the historical aspects of what you've kind of done now? Is it going to be uh, something totally different? Are you going to – is every book going to be more like a standalone so people can kind of jump into the series wherever they do it? How do you envision? How do you see it happening going into the future? Um, I'm definitely going to carry through the thread with the relic because, um, you know, that – that was a major um, sort of chase in the in the book, and and a very strong and ardent desire on the part of the antagonist to obtain it. And so um, I want I will probably delve into that, which will be a, bring a little bit more supernatural into the second book that it's alluded to in the first, but it's not very heavy heavy in that. Um, and then I will I I'm planning on focusing on a little more narrowly in the second book on kind of one problem that they're trying to solve in addition to this, you know, the thing with the relics, which is kind of overarching. The, the Veritas Deception, the first one, it, it covers a lot of ground. In fact, that was probably the hardest thing for me. There was even more that I really wanted to talk about, and I had to winnow it down. So I envision subsequent books kind of tackling one thing. So, for instance, if if since book one talks a little bit about some of the issues with um, the bioethicist euthanasia, um, maybe you know the the rise of the antihero in in television and media, it talks a little bit about um, you know the role of religion. The ne- I would just have one topic I think for the next book and 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 subsequent books that they're that they're dealing with. At the same time, you know, and, and I can't—I I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give away what happens in the first book. But at the same time, you know, kind of fleshing out what's going on with the with those relics. And as far as like writing style, uh, the one thing I always like to ask is: Are you going to have you already kind of decided that you're going to challenge yourself in a different way with this book? Are people going to kind of notice a little bit of different, you know, Lynn Constantine from book one to book two? Um, well, I always like to challenge myself to obviously to improve. I mean, you know, I think um, I don't. I would never want to become a formulaic. So I, um, I haven't thought about what that specifically would entail. Other than, other than, as I said, I can. I try to. I mean, I read a lot about craft. I still have a. There's a great workshop uh, not far from me, and a, this fantastic mentor, Patrick McCord, um, who's helped me a lot with just different aspects of writing. And I probably will do a couple of intensives with him this in the fall. But what I may do is um, I may play around a little bit, again, more with point of view. Um, I did that a bit in this book where it's third-person point of view, but then the the parallel storyline is in the first person person present. So um, I may do that, or I may try to um, play a little bit, you know, around with character. So uh, I'm not sure. But, I, you know, I think that it will still be in, the same, in a similar style because I would – if it's going to be a series, it's got to be a little bit branded, and I think people expect – just you know, same kind of story, same sort of conspiracy um, feel that the first one has. 
Well, so. I have we have we've kind of run down here to the end, but I want to give you the ability to kind of let everybody know where they can find you. And you know, you're the social media guru, so your social media, <laughs> all your fun stuff. So where's the best place? for them to kind of find out more about your work uh, or maybe get in contact or just kind of, you know, tweet Facebook so they can share their dinner pictures with you. Please tell us. <laughs> sure. The best is to go to my website because my website has all my links to Twitter, Facebook, link, you know, LinkedIn, Google Plus, and that's lynnconstantine.com, and it's Lynn with an E. So it's L-Y-N-N-E-C-O-N-S-T-A-N-T-I-N-E. Um, and there's also information on, you know, books. All There's tons of social media um, articles on there and some articles on writing, and as well as um, interviews that I've done th- with uh, a lot of the ITW authors. So uh, pretty much anything you need to know you can find on my website. And well, Lynn, also, we want to thank you so much. Oh, oh, Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so we want to thank you so much for coming on. I mean, it's been fabulous to be able to talk to you. It's great. I mean, this is kind of like your, I would say this is your debut book because the other one you wrote with your sister, but this is you, this is your debut thriller. You're out, you're doing your thing, and right. it's great. Can't wait to see what you got going in the future. And so then in 20 years, we'll be talking about book 20 in the series or something. You never know. <laughs> you never know. Thank you so much never for having know. me. It's been great. All right. You have a good one. Take it easy. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. So again, everybody, that is author Lynn Constantine. The book is called The Veritas Deception. You can get it wherever books are sold. I go to Amazon and pick it up right now, Kindle, paperback, however you want to read it. It is available. We also have to let you know about some other things. Of course, you know, got to pay the bills here at the radio station. And L.J. Sellers is back out. She is the best-selling uh, author of the Detective Jackson series, which is something a little different this time. A young morgue intern pursues a ruthless military researcher. It's called the Gender Experiment. And again, that is by L.J. Sellers. So packed with page-turning action, it's like taking a ride on a bullet, says author Drew Kaufman. So make sure you visit ljsellers.com and check out her latest book, Gender Experiment. Another book we got from Kensington, from Cat Martin. Uh, This is going to be more along the lines of the romantic kind of thriller, especially if you see the covers with the guy with no shirt on, you know what you're going to be getting into. It's gripping, pulse-pounding suspense, though, says the USA Today. So make sure you get into it. Uh, it looks like it's got Into the Fury, Into the Firestorm, Into the Whirlwind. So you want to read them all. It's like a trilogy within a trilogy. Again, that is by Cat Martin and another great book from Kensington Books. Also, A Witty Tale with Two Retirees, A Lawyer and a Hitman Cleverly Periled or parallels, says Kirkus Reviews, about Janet Cole and her latest book, An Oddfellows Mystery. It's called The Smell of Money. Make sure that you visit coleslaw.com, that's K-O-L-E, slaw.com, for more information. We're going to take a short break, and then we are going to be back here with our next guest. She is author Dina Ray, and she's going to be talking about her book, The Best Seller. So stick around for that. Won't you smile a little pretty baby In my eyes you can never do no wrong The moon is a night in a song Been a long, long, long road to get here For the first time I feel free 
Welcome, everybody, here after the break. Again, we are halfway through. We've had two fantastic authors and Kelly Armstrong and Lynn Constantine to be able to be on. So we're going to kick off the second half of the show with author Dina Ray. Her latest book, or her book is called The Best Seller. It is out now. Uh, you can go to Amazon. It came out in May. So let's jump on right now with uh, Dina. So, Dina, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I love Suspense Magazine. I'm, I'm real excited to be here. Awesome, but we didn't have to pay you to say that. That's the best kind of praise we can get. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you emailed me, and I, and you know, this is kind of how things kind of happen. Is and I always kind of let people know. Um, I don't really go out and search for a lot of authors because we get so many requests and emails, and so I read a lot of them. And when I read your email about the book, The Best Seller, and you have a lot of stuff going on. So I was like, okay, this is going to be a very interesting kind of topic. So I wanted to, ma- I wanted to get you on to kind of talk about it. So let's talk about The Best Seller. Tell everybody about what you got going on. I would love to. Well, first of all, I am a self-proclaimed conspiracy theorist. So you can read into awesome. that what you, what you like, but... I absolutely love conspiracy theories. Uh, I'm very knowledgeable about a lot of conspiracy theories. I certainly don't know everything, but um, I am attracted to those kind of shows on TV, on uh, those kind of websites, those kind of news articles, etc. So The Bestseller, like all of my books, is infused with conspiracy theory that is woven into the plot. With that being said, it's a story, it's, it's two stories that come together at the end. And it is an open ending, and I am writing the sequel 
as we speak. So it is book one of two books. And the first storyline, you're introduced with a general who uh, is running an Air Force base. And I call it Brooms Lake. It's really Grooms Lake, which is now Area 51. That's um, It's like a, a takeoff from that. Well, he runs Brooms Lake. And he is uh, given the chance right after World War II to be in charge of the findings at Roswell. So he gets uh, four aliens that are presumably dead, and he also gets the debris of the spacecraft that crashed outside of Roswell. Now, my general is a little bit different than a lot of the generals during World War II. He found himself a Nazi scientist like so many of our other men. If your listeners know anything about Operation Paperclip, then they're well aware that we was took... That, was, that, was that Paperclip? Like like Paperclip? I've not, I've not yes. heard that one. Huh. Okay, well, well, let me back up a little bit. Um, Operation Paperclip is not even a conspiracy theory. It's a fact that we took Germany's best and brightest scientists, brought them back here, um, gave them a pardon for all of their war crimes. They never saw a day in jail, never went to Nuremberg trials, never did anything, and we used them for our benefit. And, um, of course, the end result is we became the most powerful nation on the planet because of our weapons. So you can arguably say that the United States is really the Fourth Reich. So in my book, the um, general that is the star of my um, novel, he finds a Nazi who um, isn't into engineering, isn't into rocket science, isn't into physics. He's into genetics. So he takes this geneticist back with him to Broom's Lake. And he's not really quite sure what he's going to use him for until he gets possession of the alien. And the story, um, that storyline goes from there. And I had to do a lot of research about genetics because I didn't know that much about it. Uh, really fascinating stuff. And, um, of course, this is 1947, but most conspiracy theories believe that we knew a whole lot more uh, than we were telling the world back then. Uh, so, of course, they knew about DNA, which officially wasn't invented or discovered to the 1950s. But, of course, my scientist knows all about that. He's way ahead of his time. That's one storyline. And eventually he figures out, he and uh, two other Nazi scientists they import from Brazil, they eventually figure out how to splice um, alien genes into human babies. That's storyline one. Storyline two is in modern day, and um, through one character, when the chapter's on one character, I use first person. Her name is Maya Smock, and she's this very young woman who's been kicked around her whole life. She grew up as an orphan in the, in the foster care system. She's real, she's, she's 
she's bright, but she's naive at the same time. Um, she's only 20 years old, and she just doesn't know where she fits in. But for some reason, she's always drawn to books. So she gets a job at a bookstore and somehow manages to write a book with very little effort, with very little uh, practice of any kind of writing. Uh, it's almost as if the novel writes itself. And as the story goes on, you find out she's not alone in this talent. There is another science fiction writer who's a billionaire. He's kind of like the Stephen King of the science fiction world. And um, he also runs an alien institute, which is kind of like MUFON. I don't know if your uh, listeners are familiar with it, but there are actual alien institutes like MUFON and SETI. And I used, uh, I roughly used one of them as the alien institute in my book. So this young girl gets hooked up in these like celebrity alien believing types. And it goes from there. Her book is much, much, much more than a best-selling fictional book. It is a code. The story goes on. And eventually both stories tie together. And right now I'm, I'm writing the sequel, which is about a third of the way done. Um, and again, if you like conspiracy from ancient aliens, it's in there. If you like conspiracy uh, from Nazi Germany, My wife it's loves in that show, Ancient Aliens. My, life, my wife loves that show, Ancient Aliens. She was just talking about part of it where how the RH factor uh, was just a part of how that could have been like an alien thing about the RH factor in women and why they have to get the shots. And I'm like, okay. Right. You know, <laughs> it's, sometimes it's yeah, hard I'm, to, wrap I'm your, RH, you know, to wrap your head around those things. Right. I'm RH negative myself. In fact, the whole entire why there are 5 to 10% women with RH negative uh, only – dismisses the evolution theory even more because that is based on the um, rhesus monkey. And if we're RH negative, then we cannot come from the rhesus monkey. Therefore, evolution does not, it cannot be true. So anyway, I'm, I know, yeah, I'm babbling. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, but the, 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 the thing is, is I want to kind of go back to what you just said because I had no idea about alien you know, uh, I guess laboratories, alien places. What uh, can you go into a little bit about what about what that is? Um, what do they do? I had no idea that those things really existed. I mean, of course, I know that there's institutions where they, you know, are seeing if there's life on other planets and studying, but I didn't know the in-depth part of how far they go into it. Well, there's two institutes that are the most famous. One is called Mufan. And one is called SETI, S-E-T-I, and they're both uh, acronyms for different things. I think they started off as one. Are they in the United States? Yes. Okay. Yes. They they also have um, telescopes uh, positioned all over the world. So that... There are people who are watching for alien for spaceships who are um, trying to navigate the stars the best that they can that are 
uh, finding other planets that are all related to these networks. Hmm. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, those are those kind of the the underbelly stuff that you only really hear about, like in books. And you really wonder if that stuff is kind of really true. I mean, it's not like the normal mainstream news that you would kind of see. And is that just because it is one of those topics that is just kind of controversial and people are like, oh, you know, that's just science fiction stuff. It's not really true. But then when you kind of see the proof of certain things, like I always tell people, I mean, there's enough evidence to show that ghosts are real. Whether you choose to believe it or not, that's on you. But there's enough evidence to show that ghosts are real. There's also a lot of evidence to show that something has come from someplace else and visited us. Now, again, whether or not you choose to believe it, that's on you. But there is some evidence to show that there is something that has happened. And even if it's one unexplained event, that's all you need. You don't need to have 100. You only need to have one. That's all it takes. Right. So, so, so when you're kind of getting into to wanting to write this book, and you know, like you said, your, you know, your big conspiracy theory – how do you kind of narrow down to say that this is the one that I'm going to kind of explore in my book, The Bestseller? Well, um, MUFON, for, for example, they're uh, on a show, I think, called uh, uh, Hangar 51. I don't know if maybe your wife, you say your wife likes ancient aliens. She probably is, has yeah. seen that one. Uh, probably not. She's um, watched them all. <laughs> They're, well, they're a UFO organization that started in the 60s. I know uh, more about MUFON because they're more uh, in the public's eye than SETI, but SETI was found by the you know, infamous Carl Sagan. Uh, he was the physicist who said he believes that there's aliens and um, spaceships out there, and he, he kind of caused a real, you know, um, scuttlebutt back in the 60s and amongst academics. So there's a lot of really smart people out there who are telling us that, yeah, aliens exist. Yeah, uh, spaceships exist. Yeah, there is life on other planets. So like you said, how many times do we have to hear about it before it's accepted as truth? And uh, even Hillary Clinton herself has um, made some gestures for the UFO community that if she gets elected, she would share what information the U.S. government has on um, aliens, which I doubt that she'd share it. I'm sure she knows it. I'm sure her husband already told her, but I doubt that she would share it. I don't know why um, all of the whole entire world, for that matter, are being secretive about it, but uh, it's definitely... Well, would you think that if it... Well, if, let's just say that a spaceship landed on the White House. Don't you think that that would totally annihilate the religious aspect of that there's a God and that the Bible and those types of things, that it could cause the world to go into panic? Now, I'm going to be the devil's advocate on that side and say, if a spaceship landed on the White House, how many people would start saying that Armageddon's here and just start going crazy? Well... I, I see what you're saying, but on the other side of the coin, who to to say that there is no God? Well, who who created the aliens? So it just kind of prolongs True. that question. It's got to start with somebody. Uh, even the Vatican has a gigantic telescope and um, 
they're they're looking for life on other planets too. The Vatican itself does not dismiss uh, life on other planets. So, um, as far as Armageddon goes, maybe you're right. Maybe the it's described in the Bible, but then again, it's described by people from a different era. How do we know that demons aren't aliens? How do we know that angels aren't aliens? They're only using the words that they used in that time frame. So we don't really know. We we always think of those kinds of things as supernatural, but they might be the aliens that uh, so many people are talking about now that were around back then. Now, when you when you mention in your book here that you know these authors that when they're writing their book, they're embedding an alien genetic code within the pages of their novel. And, of course, the book practically writes itself. Is there some kind of power, some, kinds of, some kind of thing that they've come across, something that's made them kind of get into this and kind of wake up from this fog when they're done writing going, I don't even know how I knew this stuff. Well, I don't want to give everything away, but yes, there no, is a reason. But there's something like but, that. Yes, there is definitely uh, um, uh, on the subconscious level, they don't know exactly where the information is coming from up until maybe the oh about three quarters into the book, mm-hmm. and then it's uh, explained why why they're doing it. And, um, of course, it's further explained in the sequel, which I'm writing as we speak. Um, the, and now, when the, did you know this would be a sequel? Did you know all along that you were going to write two books, or did you kind of get into it and say, I'm never going to finish what I want to do on book one, so I'm going to end this in a way where book two is going to kind of begin? And, and, and when did you kind of know that was going to happen? Well, uh, I'll be honest. I'm not much of a planner when I when I write anything. I, I have a very vague idea of what the story is going to be about, but I'm really not quite sure where I'm going till maybe I'm about 70% done. Um, I thought when I was writing this, it would be a standalone. I thought I could get everything that I wanted to get in uh, as a standalone, and then you know now I'm hitting 110,000 words, and it's and I'm not even remotely close to some of the key things that I wanted to hit upon. So I went back, um, you know, thought of a good cliffhanger to leave it at, and um, I, I'm as as I speak, I'm, I'm writing the second one as we speak, and it's pretty much got. Oh, at least ten conspiracy theories woven into the book. <laughs> how did you get involved in least... conspiracy theories? I mean, was it something? I mean, was it was it a certain kind of, um, uh, you know, what was it a book? Was it something that you read? Uh, you know, one of the big actors that I know and I interviewed on my show once was uh, Richard Belzer, and, you know, he's a big conspiracy theory. A lot of people don't realize that Detective John Munch is very close to how Richard Belzer is in real life and what he actually does believe, which is why he's so great in that character. But was it something, I mean, you know, what got you involved in this? Well, I think it all started maybe back in high school. I think we had to read 1984, and um, it just kind of it started with political conspiracies and then you know you get into the big ones like my favorite of them all 
is New World Order conspiracy. I, I think that umbrellas, probably 90% of your conspiracies are somehow related to New World Order. And uh, it got, um, of course, the aliens are tied with that. And um, alien conspiracy is, you know, it's fascinating. Uh, for vacation this year, my husband and I went to the Roswell Festival. And um, we got to tour the museum, and we we got to meet all of these really uh, brainy physicist types who um, were talking about life on other planets. And uh, it it was I it was a whole world that I had no idea even existed. But they are definitely out there, and um, there's just like you said, there's just too too many people screaming that they're that they're here, that um, they're um, going to make their move pretty soon. I, I, one of my favorite radio shows besides yours is uh, Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. Conspiracy Lover's Dream Come True, that show. Hmm. Uh, again, there's, just, there's too, many, too many conspiracy theories that have too many cameras clicking, too many facts that you just can't ignore. Yeah, I mean, I've always said that there's too many of them for them all to be false. But I don't think that they're all, you know, I don't think they're all real, but I think there's too many of them for all to be false. I mean, I think that there's some, you know, reality that is in some of them. Of course, one of the biggest ones, uh, you know, 9-11, which, you know, 15 yeah. years ago. I mean, that's that's one of the ones that a lot yeah. of people say. Now, whether or not people are saying, I mean, I've heard different things. I think it was building seven or the building that never got hit. And all of a sudden that just kind of came down without anybody hitting it. And that's one of the mm-hmm. things I've always felt was weird. Like that building was never mm-hmm. hit. It was never close to anything, but then it just fell and it fell in the way mm-hmm. of, you know, several experts have always said that it fell in the way of a controlled demolition. And I know Jesse Ventura has talked a lot about it. I mean, he had a big conspiracy theory, yeah. theory show that I would watch and things like that. Um, so wh- what do you think makes a good conspiracy theory? Well, good conspiracy theory has a lot of facts that give it a foundation. That's, that's the whole key. Because it, it, you could say anything you want, I could say anything that I want, but if we don't have any facts to, to back up our theory, then it's just rubbish. Um, you know, without getting too political, uh, the the Pope, uh, it, a lot of conspiracy theory theorists believe that you know he's the Antichrist or he's going to be the false prophet. Well, there's a lot of things that he has done and a lot of things that he has said, plus other prophecies that add uh, add uh, weight to that that comment. Uh, John F. Kennedy. His assassination of John F. Kennedy, uh, one of the biggest conspiracies ever. Well, um, again, the the bullet didn't um, go the way. Or, or the, when you look at how his bullet wound was in his head, well, it didn't go the way that John or um, Oswald was when he was in the sixth floor window of the book depository. Right. When it went through his head a different way. So again, you you got to have hardcore facts to back up these theories or they just don't make any sense. Um, 
you know, right now on the news, Hillary Clinton and all of the emails and all of the theories oh, flying yeah. out about, uh, again, well, uh, we don't know what, what the emails were about. She had them deleted, right? But we do know that she had a private server. We do know that she lied about it. We do know a lot of things that back up that, well, maybe there is something to it. Maybe she was pulling some crap with her foundation. We, but, we, again, we don't really know. Yeah, and, you know, and, and those are kinds of the things where uh, I think a lot of people try to fill in the blanks yeah, with you're right. you're things right. that that aren't even close. It's like you know what? Well, we don't know, so let's just fill in the blank with with this and then make it sound good. Yeah, but I mean, and my always biggest thing is, is for, and you know, if we're just going to talk about the Clinton email thing, is just give me one email that showed that that, that this country was put into any kind of danger whatsoever with national security. This is four right. years ago. You know, she hasn't been Secretary of State for four years. So show me one. Just give me one. All I want is one, and no one's been able to ever do that. So then I always kind of say, then, then you're just right. then all you're trying to do is throw darts at a dartboard and have something stick, but nothing sticking because you can't give me one example, you know. And and that's what I always say. But like with the Oswald, I think that there's been so many scientific studies to prove there's absolutely no way that his bullet did what he did. And how it did, I mean, there had to have been something else that happened. And, of course, a guy wrote a book saying that it was an accidental shot from the, um, from the, uh, from the car behind in the Secret Service. And it was an accidental shot that accidentally got him, and that's what it was. I mean, there's a lot of that stuff going on. But when you can scientifically prove that it's something else, I think it tends a lot more than just some guy running around saying, they did it, they did it. Well, yeah, you've got to have the fact. I totally believe that, yeah. Yeah, I um that w- that's definitely one of the best uh conspiracy theories that's one of the ever. Best. And of course Lincoln's death is is pretty much up there. Uh he his wasn't as cut and dry as the history books teach either. Um he had a lot of people seem to think that uh Andrew Johnson had had something about it. Not not that any of this has to do with my book, but um I just love conspiracy theories and um, right, but but what one, it does have with the book is it shows that the the depth that that you're going to go and you're going to show the research in your book, the bestseller, and the kinds of things that when people are going to read it, they're going to know that you've explored these things to the fullest, and this is kind of what you've been able to bring out. And I think that that's the good, and I think that's the the great part that you've been able to write here in your book. Thank you. That's a, that's exactly what I was going for. And like your um, your writer before me, Lynn, she had uh, a lot to say about the Nazi occult, and uh, she is you know right on the money. We we there's so much that Hitler and his goons were into that can leave us writers you know with so much material for the next you know ten twenty content. years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's and then that's what I said because you know the, you know in the news right now is the whole thing about the Nazi gold train. Where is it? And some guy says, well, we found it in Poland, but then they haven't found it yet. And other people are like, well, it doesn't exist. Other people are like, well, that's not where it is. So you got three different things going on. Did you find it? Is it not there, or did it even exist? You know, like the Amber Room. You know, we knew the Amber Room existed, but where did it go? You know, where did these things end up? Um, you know, that's right. the one thing that I always find funny. So yeah. It, it's, well, well I'll they, tell you, you know, what. 
Oh, I'm sorry. I, I I was you're talking about the Nazis, and then there's that uh, Diglock that uh, right by Poland and, and Germany, right there on the border. They have that really right. weird circle thing that they think tethered some kind of flying machine. Uh, they're not really sure what they used it for, but they're pretty sure it was um, supposed to tether some kind of flying machine that was shaped like a bell. Yeah, I, don't know if I, I mean, and and the and the funny thing is, is all these records tend to have been just destroyed or are they sitting somewhere that nobody wants to release? And that's the other thing. I mean, they, this stuff had to have been written down someplace at some time somewhere. Where did those mm-hmm. things go? And if they're still around, who has them, where have them? And I think that the one thing that I think a lot of people would love to do is go to the Vatican archives and see what the hell they got mm-hmm. going on down there because oh. they got some stuff down there that if if anybody ever wanted to storm the gates and see what was going on, you could open up Pandora's box probably with what they got going on down there. So, But, Dina, I got to tell you, it's been great having you on to talk about your book, The Bestseller, and just a bunch of other stuff. I could talk these kinds of theories and things for hours. I mean, you just get yourself so involved with this, and that's what's great uh, to be able to have conversations like this with authors like yourself. So thank you so much for coming on, and I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. All right. You have a good one. Enjoy. You too. All right. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Dina Ray, and her book is called The Best Seller. You can go to her website called Dina Ray's. That's R-A-E-S, write stuff. Write is like like you're writing, W-R-I-T-E. So, Dina Ray's, write stuff. Dot blogspot.com is where you can go check this out. Now, the book is available now. It's the bestseller. It's actually free right now on Kindle. Go out there. You can get it for free on your Kindle right now. So make sure you go out there and, and check it out. Um, and we are going to take a short break. We're going to be back with our last guest, uh, J.T. Patton, and he's going to uh, talk about uh, his, his, latest, his latest works that he's got going on here. But the other thing I want to uh, let you know real quick is Iris Johansson, of course, number one bestseller author Iris Johansson, and her uh, Eve Duncan series, she did something a little different. She did what was called the Hit Trilogy, and it is on sale now, so it's like a trilogy within her series. It's called Shadow Play, Hideaway, and Night and Day, and they are Eve Duncan books, and like I said, it's a trilogy within her series, and that's Iris Johansson. If you've never followed Iris or you don't really know, I mean, you've got to pick up a you know, an Eve Duncan book, and check out Iris Johansson. She's, she's one of the masters. Uh, and finally, John Lesquois and Alifair Burke both tell you that Steve Cavanaugh's book, The Defense, is definitely a book that you need to check out. A lawyer, a husband, a father, but a con artist, a hustler, and a criminal. All these things are included in here. One of the biggest praises is fans of Grisham, Tarot, and Meltzer will be a fan of Steve Cavanaugh, and that's what Nelson DeMille says. So when you've got three fantastic authors telling you about this book, pick up The Defense by Steve Cavanaugh. Go check it out. See if it's in your wheelhouse. We are then going to be right back again with our last guest, J.T. Patton. And in the meantime, we will let you listen to this.
Welcome back, everybody, again, after the break. We are now three-quarters of the way through our show, and we are going to hit it with our last guest. He is author J.T. Patton. His book is called Primed Charge. It is the second in his Safe Haven series, with his first book coming out in that series called Shadow Masters. So, J.T., thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and thanks for having me out here. So Prime Charge is the second book in your Safe Haven series, and this is a definitely a CIA, FBI, political, black ops thrilling series, um, with starting off with Shadow Masters. So why don't you tell us what you got going on in Prime Charge here? Sure. Uh, well, as, as you said, it's part of a series called uh, Safe Havens, and um, Prime Charge kind of takes – it's the second uh, in the series, and uh, it – takes off from the first one, although it is meant to be also a standalone. Um, but what it does is it, it, it focuses on kind of your everyday um, intelligence and operations hero, in this case, Sean Havens, um, who I created to be somewhat of that regular guy, somebody who people can see themselves as, um, not to knock the others in the genre, but, uh, you know, I think that these superhuman super feats get a little bit crazy. And so this is one that I hope people can say, boy, he's got a family, he's got responsibilities, and, you know, he's got marital issues and things like that, and he's got to work on those at the same time. And so in this case, uh, Sean Havens is uh, back in the game. Uh, the CIA has brought him in, and uh, he's really um, kind of trapped. Uh, he needs a job, and uh, – who had suffered some uh, medical issues in the first one, and so in order, uh, he's regular as you get. Uh, so he is back embroiled in finding um, this intelligence agency, which is called the Pond, and that had been a to or an actual intelligence um, capability that we had had, but middled uh, away. And in this case, are you there? So they're involved in rigging elections, um, empowering the those who uh, 
uh, are the uh, the elite, and we deal with then a conflict within the CIA that he's kind of enmeshed in, which deals with Freemasons and the Skull and Bones, and finding out that you know this may be just a bit of a game that these guys are playing by sending out the, the ground soldiers uh, to do their bidding. So it's a it's a conspiracy, but yet it also adds in the military thriller side and uh, an espionage twist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've had some, we know, we were just talking to uh, Dina Ray, you know, she was talking conspiracy too. So it's like a popular subject to kind of get into because there's so many underlining secret things that we don't know about. And, of course, you just mentioned, you know, Skull and Bones, and you mentioned, you know, the Freemasons and those kinds of societies that there's, there's a lot of things written about them. You're not really sure what's true and what's not true. So when you were going to research those types of things, um, I believe, what was it, six or seven presidents have been involved in the Skull and Bones. Um, I think George Bush was the most recent uh, addition was yeah, president. Yeah. So that's one of those things, and I, that's one of those societies that's, you know, really, really secretive and those types of things. So how is it trying to get information to really find out about them? Because, you know, they've been around for so long, they're able to kind of, you know, keep themselves hidden. Yeah, I think that's kind of the fun of it in, in writing um, – fiction is that you can get some some research done just to give you give that right taste and add enough of the history so that it makes something plausible but because nobody really knows what goes behind closed doors um you can play around with it and have some fun so in the case of uh skull and bones you know there are certain things that are published as to where they've had some meetings you know the 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 deer island and who's been involved with that and then there's also the fact that because it comes from Yale and a lot of the Yalesmen have been part of the CIA, it just kind of nicely brings that together. Um, then if you look at some of these maps that show, you know, whether they're valid or not, but they show the ties into the Illuminati and how the Illuminati goes into, you know, Knights Templar and, and things like that, it's really kind of fun because you can say, boy, these guys are really kind of conjoined. And what would happen if, the Freemasons who are also a part of this, you know, supposed lineage of Illuminati and, um, you know, the Crusaders, you know, what, what if these guys recognize, okay, they're kissing cousins, but you know, Mm -hmm. each one wants to have their own turf. And so you can just do enough of the conspiracy research and then, you know, just kind of sprinkle that about. And I never really try to focus this i've never uh read or seen the movies of dan brown but i've heard enough about them to recognize okay i don't need to research all of this and make that the story i just like to have that as backdrop and more of the story about the characters who are these kind of everyday victims whether they're the good guy the bad guy who is being manipulated and and that's what i try to focus on is that character development and and that plot that they're embroiled in so when you were sitting down and, and you were starting to conceptualize the series Safe Havens and you knew that you needed to have a very, very strong character, and so you decided to create Sean, what was kind of the personality aspects you wanted to make sure that you kind of had Sean across when you were starting to build him from basically the ground up? Well, um, it, it kind of started with, with the whole, I guess, uh, beginning of, of, of what got me writing, which was a bet. And uh, there's a very famous a author uh, who, 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 yeah. Did you lose? That, okay. Uh, very, first of all, did you lose that bet, and that's why you were doing it, or did you win, and then you? Did? 
<laughs> I, I think I won it, but I'm not so sure that in oh, doing okay. so I didn't lose. <laughs> oh, okay, but, um, good. <laughs> there was there was a there you know there was a, a very famous author, and this is pretty common within you know the thriller military thriller genre where these these writers are reaching out to the intelligence and military community for some ideas or some you know validation and to make things more credible. And this one particular author reached out to one of my buddies who was a, a childhood friend. And he was saying, hey, I need some help coming up with this concept and, uh, and some details. And, and they were a little outside of my buddy's scope. So he called me up and then we started working with this author and, and helping out. And, you know, he's very gracious about it. Well, after about the second or third book that we had been helping on, my buddy and I were saying, you know, we should be doing this. If these authors are coming to us asking questions, we should just write something. And so that's where the gauntlet was thrown down. So initially – what I did in just trying to pen this out, and I was, you know, kind of fast and furious, was taking a hybrid of myself from the intelligence community side and then my other buddy on the special operations and kind of fusing that best of breed of, you know, a smart guy um, who understands intelligence, but then you also have the guy with the operator capabilities, but yet you still have to deal with you know, getting kids to the soccer games and coming back in town and, you know, wanting to decompress, but yet you've got a family reunion you've got to get to and you, you forgot about your wife's anniversary. So that's what we kind of, I did kind of constructed based on, you know, having fun with my buddy and saying, Hey, wouldn't this be funny to throw in there? And then all of a sudden it just materialized saying, this is actually a little bit different from what a lot of people are reading. And I hope to give them kind of a newer experience. Now, the other kind of thing, when, you, when you're writing the CIA and you're writing these kind of FBI uh, thrillers, uh, I was talking with Brad Thor and Mark Greeny, who I see you know, bl- uh, blurbs your work, and several others, uh, like Vince Flynn before he passed away. Sometimes they kind of have to be vetted by the government because there's some things in there that they don't want to know, and I kind of understand that that's what happened with Prime Charge. Can you kind of give us the story about how that kind of happened with the CIA in your book? Sure. Well, um, you know, for years I was involved with the uh, national security community, and whether it was working in uh, special operations or the government, um, you know, I've been an intelligence analyst. So I've got agreements with uh, the CIA and with the Department of Justice or Department of Defense, and so I have to ensure that anything that I'm publishing um, is reviewed. And I, and I, and I, I don't take that uh, lightly. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's one of the reasons that I self-publish is to ensure that I keep control to ensure that th- mm. when, when they're ready and that's okay, then I can push it out. And in this case, um, DOD had approved it. And there's different stipulations. The CIA has to, before you can pass it to anybody else, DOD needs to do it once it's a final copy. So, I had the final copy, and I had already passed it to CIA. They had no problems with it initially, so we were all a go to print. And then I got a note maybe, I don't know, a couple of days later saying uh, from the CIA saying, oh, eight pages of redactions in your final copy, and uh, we need these taken care of before um, you release it, or we need you to come in and justify, you know, where you found these in open in open source. So, we had to put the brakes on very quickly and careful about what I put out there to ensure that I'm not exposing, you know, tactics or um, um, uh, any types of, you know, programs that are done. But in this case, what they called it was kind of analytical insights, which was 
things that I was able to derive based on my knowledge and kind of create something. So um, we, we just wanted to make sure that that was clean and that there wasn't anything that could divulge, you know, things that they may or may not be doing. And uh, so I think that kind of, even though it was a pain in the butt, um, I think it again validates some of the uniqueness of this where, you know, it's, it's authentic enough where the agency is still going to redact and ensure that I'm, you know, maybe on the line, but not crossing the line. And, uh, and I, I think that's the right way to do it. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that is one of the, the things that the public, of course, you know, we've been talking a lot in the, in the show about like, you know, what the public uh, should know, what they should not know. And there's some things that, you, you know, things fall into the wrong hands. You know, this still has to stay fiction, whether or not there's some, of course, reality aspects sprinkled into those things. You still have to, you know, respect the fact that we do need to have some things that are secret and, and kind of away from the public. And knowing the things that you know and knowing, you know, been behind, you know, you've kind of been able to be behind the curtain, how difficult is that for you as a writer when you're writing these things to not want to bring things out that are probably really damn cool that, <laughs> that we would, you know, yeah. that you can find them having the books, but, but you just can't say anything? Yeah, you know, it's I, I think that initially it was harder than it is now because I think it, at at the beginning I thought, I know all this cool stuff and maybe I can put it out there, you know, be, to show that I know this. And, and again, I think that's kind of a, the immaturity that I had initially because the first one I started writing was probably six years ago. And now with it all said and done, maybe a little bit longer, but as I, I'm an avid reader too. So if I read something by, you know, Mark Graney, Brad Thor, uh, John Gilstrap, those guys hadn't served and they hadn't worked in the intelligence community. They haven't been behind that curtain but yet they're kicking out fantastic books. And what I recognized was if they had a concept that worked, then if you could stand up by your own writing quality and building that suspense and that tension, that really mattered more than all the secretive programs and this and that. I think there's enough out there that we can be creative about and say, this is what my story is about and it's cool because it relates to what's going on in the world. Um, so I don't feel that now I really need to get that close. I think the one area that I do expose, and it's nothing that I'd ever done before or that I learned about, but I had a background in red teaming, which is looking at a lot of infrastructure issues and, and problems and try to figure out the loopholes, the risks and the threats and the vulnerabilities. And so in the first book that I did, um, Shadow Masters, I tried to highlight some areas in infrastructure that could be exploited because at this point, nobody's uh, listening to me anyway from the government side about this. But um, for example, I used the Acela train and how at a high speed, if you had, you know, hacked into the SCADA controllers, um, you'd be able to derail the the train. And so I had a little bit of fun with that. Um, Ironically, about a year later, uh, there was a tragic accident of the Acela train that had gone at a high speed at one of those turns that I had identified. Um, could that have uh-huh. been prevented? I don't know. Um, the thing that I've been dealing with now in both of, actually a little bit of both books, um, using UAVs, um, putting rebar on a UAV and flying it into a jet engine. I mean, you think that a a seagull or a hawk is going to mess with a plane, you know, 
that that's going to take the cake. Um, and then I had in this other book attaching explosives to it. So I pushed that out. And, you know, now that we've got some headlines that uh, Hezbollah is using UAVs with explosives on them. Now they're not reading my books, but it's just that type of a threat that people are thinking about. It's evolving. How can we do it? And in, in uh, this last one, I had also put in um, using those solar compactors, uh, trash cans around New York City or the major cities, and how if you had a combined chemical and you put that in there, when those compact, really what you can figure at a, a timing, um, you could use that as an uh, improvised explosive device. So those are the things that I try to now bring to the forefront is not giving people ideas uh, because it would take some time right. for them to you know create that. But I'm hoping that if somebody's reading it and say, huh, maybe we should take a look at this and figure out what we could do to improve this situation. Or, again, you know, reach out to me and say, how would we fix that? And, and I'd gladly share the remedy as well. Now, also in the book, Time Charge, the, the thing that you've done is, and, and it's very common in military political thrillers, is you know you take the reader and of course the character onto a journey with several different you know countries and different cities in the United States. How difficult is that to kind of you know you're taking them like you've written from Chicago to Fayetteville to Burma to Thailand, New York. I mean, there's many different cultures and many different things that goes on outside of the United States, like with Burma and Thailand, and to try to fill that in so the reader understands when they're in those cities and you've placed them there when they're reading that they get that real feel for the culture and the people and how those things really, uh, you know, really are. Is that a difficult thing for you to, you know, kind of explain and get through into the book? Well, I, I hope that it comes out. I mean, it's easier for me to put my thoughts into it and the creativity than sometimes it may be conveyed. Try not to make it so, so detailed that, you know, people get bored about with it. Um, it I think that really being that master are those, those authors that can, so in the little bits of political issues, social issues, but then also describing the landscape, uh, I think Josh Hood does that very well. And there's a guy, Andrew Warren, who's created one about uh, um, like a, a, a Asian uh, backdrop. Um, I, I was uh, focused on a lot of area studies. So there's certain places that I know, some places that I've been to, and you can bring in those sights and smells. Um, if there's a place that I can't get to, uh, YouTube is still very fantastic to get a lot of those sites and then to figure awesome. out, you know, what would it look like to go through, you know, an, an area like this. Um, so I think that there's a lot of tools at our disposal and it's finding the balance between being descriptive and still keeping the pace. And I'm not so sure that I, I do that well at this point, but, but I try and at the very least I'm giving a reader something different than they're used to having. It is not the same old, you know, going into Iraq, going into Afghanistan. Um, I mean, I don't, I can count, I can't can't think of any time anybody's ever written about, you know, a a scene in in Burma and not too many in Thailand. And I just try to make that a short one and go to the next. So I just, I want to be fresh. And, And that's, I think, what keeps me interested as a writer is what's something that somebody hasn't written about so that at the very least, even if somebody hasn't read me, they may say, well, I don't know who this author is, but I'll give it a try because it sounds kind of interesting. Right, and that's the thing, when, you know, when you're writing political thrillers. The, I always felt 
that political thrillers for me were very, very scary. Um, I think they're more scary than like a horror novel that has all the blood and gore. To me, I always find that funny. The horror to me is always the stuff that I can't see and the stuff that I think is behind me. And I think right. that military thrillers have that same thing because it's real life. I mean, you're just looking at the, you know, the elections and the things and, and everything that's going on with ISIS. I mean, you know, people are generally scared. And so when they read one of your books, like Shadow Masters or Prime Charge or anything you have in the future, they could get that sense that this stuff could be real. So do you, do you think about that when you're writing? Do you think about the fact that people could be generally scared to death? After they're after they're kind of done, you know, reading one of your books. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I I cut my teeth on Stephen King as a, as a kid, and I was a reluctant reader. So I went from reading comic books finally, uh, when they can get me to start reading something, and then I went right into Steve, and then the the Mac Bolans and, and stuff like that. So I there was that that I think maybe what I kind of grew to love. I want to also give my readers I, – I want them to be scared as all hell. I want them to be um, – I'd, I'd like to create something that they're compelled to keep reading late into the night, so it's 1 or 2 in the morning, and when they hear a bump or something, I want them to, to have the hair on their neck be raised because they're afraid of that. I want them to go into a shopping mall and be looking around because of something that might have happened. I want them to look in these – trash receptacles now and think how far am I where are my kids I want to create awareness but I also think that's part of the fun of being a thriller writer is to thrill these people so that it's hair raising it bothers them they enjoy it but maybe they feel like they need to take a shower afterwards because they just you know it's just something is heavy on them that they just can't get off and and I think that's that's what I like to do yeah I, I mean Reading some of those political thrillers and and some of the way that you guys weave these tales in, it's definitely, I mean, just going to the store, you kind of look at somebody and go, they're acting a little strange. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, are they going to start shooting up the milk? You know what I mean? So you, yeah. you, you kind of have that thing in the back of your mind. And, and I think that just to get an emotional reaction out of, an, out of a reader is, is the goal that you're trying to do. You get, no matter what kind of emotion you're getting um, out of them, whether it's negative or positive, you've gotten a reaction. And I think that that's always one of the goals for an author to do. I, I I think so, and and that's also one of the reasons that I made you know my antagonist in the second in Prime Charge uh, a Christian extremist, because I think that there is now so much overkill in the Islamic extremism that we almost focus that that might be the only type of extreme individual or extreme ideology that could uh, create a problem. So I still want to instill that fear, but I don't want to instill fear just against Muslims. I want to instill fear against anybody that is going so extreme, that is so focused and rigid that their belief could uh, be detrimental to other people. And, and so, again, I try to capitalize on that reality of fear, but I want to create still that awareness of saying, be afraid, be very afraid, but let's think about all the possibilities and the permutations that this type of extremism can be manifested in. Yeah, see, I've always and I and I'll argue the point that I believe that there's been no ISIS sanctioned attacks in this country yet. 
Now, I know that people will want to say, well, San Bernardino, and what about Orlando? No, just because you like something doesn't mean that you were sanctioned by the people to do it. And the San Bernardino guy, I live in L.A., he was lunch with them an hour before he did what he did. He didn't just go pick yeah. anything out of random. It was people that he knew. The guy from Orlando has now been shown that he was gay and that he had some kind of mental problem and that he went in there and he was trying to shoot up a gay nightclub to maybe show that he wasn't gay. I don't know. I mean, it happens. But – the, the, the thing is, is the real fear that I always fear is my next-door neighbor because I don't know what he's doing over there. It's those people yeah. that kind of you know, that, that scare me. It's the ones that feel like they have something that has been taken from them, whether it's the government or whatnot, and they just want to act out in a violent way because they have nowhere else to do it. And when you're having to write your villains in books like this, are you, you know, you kind of have to get that point across also that these people are doing it for some better good of the purpose that they think in their warped mind is what they think is the right way to go. And sometimes that's tough as an author because you don't feel the way that the villain does, but you've got to kind of write that that way. That's right. And, and I think that's kind of the irony of this series of Safe Haven, which shows there is no safe haven because – whether I'm right. dealing with a conspiracy, whether I'm dealing with a protagonist or the antagonist, it is all based of points of view and their belief system and their ideology. So it, it sometimes can be very confusing in my books to realize who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And I try to focus on that by showing, you know, it all depends on the position that you're in because at any given point, a reader could see themselves – as any one of those camps and justify the actions of that individual or that group. And so I think that's really true world where things are very great. There is nothing that is black and white unless you are in one of those camps. And that's what I'm trying to show. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm writing for fun. I'm hoping to give people a fun experience, but I'm also hoping to create a little bit of awareness without being preachy just so that people can think about that in their mind, maybe have some discussion about that uh, with friends or book club or whatever. Is where Where's the gray? Where's the, the black? Where's the white? Which side are you on? Which side do you feel? I think that that's kind of fun intellectual discussion, you know, um, that, that makes it more than just a quick read. That was cool. They shot some more people and on to the next. Right. Well, you know, even with black and white TV, it was always shaped gray. So, but I'll tell yeah. you what, JT, I want to thank you so much for coming on. We are out of time quickly, and I want to thank you for being here. And I want to remind everybody that your website is safe-havens.com for more information on these fabulous books. And I want to thank you for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. So thank you and good luck. And contact me again when you got book three out, and we'll continue this conversation. Sounds good. Thanks so much. And they can also find it at jtpattonbooks.com as well. But thank you again. All right, bye-bye. Have a good one. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author J.T. Patton, and you want to make sure that you check out his latest book called Prime Charge, second in his Safe Haven series, the first one with Shadow Masters. It's an excellent read, very fast, quick pace. You like them thrillers, you pick that up. We want to thank everyone who was on the show today, including, of course, Kelly Armstrong, Lynn Constantine, and Dina Ray. We will be back here in two weeks, or uh, I'm back later in September. I'm taking the... Uh, Labor Day weekend off, so we'll be back um, in a couple, in about three or four weeks. So until then, everybody, like we say, keep reading. Have a good one. Bye-bye.